Okay, again, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, and we'll be in chapter number 13 tonight. Hosea chapter number 13. Most people avoid the minor prophets like a plague. Uh, it's not something that a lot of people read devotionally. Uh, but you know, the more you study what's called the minor prophets, uh, the more you realize that the main message of these few books is not doom and gloom and judgment. The main message is the love and mercy and grace of God. Even towards a backslidden people, even towards a people that hate him, he still loves them and, and ultimately is going to show them mercy. And, and uh, we just learn a lot about the heart of God as we, we go through uh, these minor prophets. And uh, especially here in the last few chapters of uh, Hosea, uh, the book of Hosea in chapters 13 and 14, we see the heart of God here. But we're going to see it throughout the minor prophets as we go through these. We hear God speak and, and we're going to learn what makes him angry what hurts his heart, and, uh, and we'll see what a great heart he has of mercy and grace. And we'll see that as we look at this text tonight. So, so pick up with me in chapter 13 and look at beginning in verse number 1. It says, When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, uh, he died. So what's he saying there? He's talking about the early days of Israel. When Israel was first uh, left Egypt and, and went over into the wilderness, they were humbled and, and uh, they were trembling. They were scared, but they were trusting God. And whenever you humble yourself, what does God do? He lifts you up. And so they were lifted up as a mighty nation. I mean, they humbled themselves before God and God turned them into a mighty nation. But then they... Forgot God, we're going to see here in a few verses on, on down here in uh, Hosea chapter 13. And they forgot God and they turned to Baal's worship. And, and as when they did, uh, what happens when you, when you worship idols? Uh, let me tell you what happens. It, 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 you, you're, you, you get puffed up. It, it, an idol is something less than God. It's actually something less than the person who creates the idol. And so you actually control your God. And so worshiping idols really is a form of pride. And uh, idolatry breeds pride. So when you have pride, what happens? Uh, pride goeth before what? Before destruction. And so uh, they died because of their, their uh, idol worship. And that's really, that first verse is really a synopsis of the whole history of the northern kingdom. I mean, they started out really well. And in the end, they were dying and they were dead. They were dead as a nation. They were, there was a whole generation that had been raised up that, that didn't even know the Lord. Then in verse number two, it says, now they sin more and more. You know, as, as, their, as their history progressed, they didn't become less idolatrous. They became more and more idolatrous. And having made for themselves molded images, idols of silver, according to their skill, all of it, uh, is the work of their craftsmen. 
They say of them, let the man who sacrificed kiss the calves. Instead of just having one golden calf, they had several golden calves. And I think the King James, if you have the King James Version, that last part of uh, the first part of verse number two, I think they nail it uh, on the head and, and give you a better translation than you get in the New King James Version. Let me read it again using the King James, at least that last part. It says, now they sinned more and more and they had made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their own understanding. That's what the King James says, according to their own understanding. Now, when Israel was a young nation, they understood who God is. They understood that God is Jehovah God. He is who he is. And he is the only God. But then when the nation split and Rehoboam took the southern kingdom and Jeroboam the first took the northern kingdom, they wanted to continue to worship Jehovah, but they wanted to do it in their way because they couldn't come down. They, Jeroboam didn't want them coming down to the southern kingdom and worshiping there because he felt that they would end up living in the southern kingdom or the kingdom would be united again, and he didn't want that to happen. So we built them a golden calf. The golden calf was representative of what they thought Jehovah looked like. And so they made this, I mean, I don't think he was very flattered by that, but they made this golden calf according to what? According to their own understanding. And then they built later on when Ahab became uh, king and he was married to Jezebel, they brought in all of these pagan gods and they made even more calves, and they worshiped the golden calf in Samaria, and they made all of these other calves, and they worshiped all of these Baals, these other gods, and they did it according to what? According to truth? No, according to their own understanding. Let me tell you something. Human beings are going to worship something. I mean, that's, we all have been given this innate, desire to worship. Dr. Henry Van Dyke once wrote that we're created with this innate desire to worship God. And listen to what he says. He says, so that in every life there is a ruling passion. I mean, that's, that's always a good test to take in your own life. What is your ruling passion? Because that's your God. In every life there is a Rule and passion. Now, who should that rule and passion be? Jehovah God. Jesus should be your ruling passion. And we sing all of these songs about how we love Jesus, but sometimes I wonder if he really is our ruling passion. For a lot of us, or for the Israelites, their ruling passion was their pagan gods. And really, again, ultimately, who were they worshiping? They were worshiping themselves because they were creating gods who were less than they were, and so they were puffed up in pride. But your ruling passion could be a sport. It could be your job. It could be your business. Uh, it, could be, it could be your family. You know, there's nothing wrong with a job and a business and a family, but that shouldn't be your ruling passion. Your ruling passion should be the Lord, and anything else is idolatry. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They drifted away from their roots in the word because they had the Torah. And in the Torah, they were told that they weren't to make any graven images and that they were to worship 
the Jehovah God and Jehovah God only. And so whenever you drift away from the word, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to drift into idolatry because you're not going to know how to worship the true and living God. And every person has this innate desire to worship God. And so they're going to find something, some passion that rules them, that rules over them. And that is their God. And for Israel, it was these grotesque pagan gods that they had created, all sorts of gods. And when, that, when they started falling into idolatry, they became more and more savage and more and more lawless. And, and that's kind of what we've seen transpire in our own nation, just how savage people have become as they've drifted away from the word. And when you drift away from the word, then you're going to drift into some form of idolatry and you're going to worship something other than the living God. Then in verse number three, he says, therefore, they shall be like a, I mean, what God's, God in his mercy is about to judge them. I mean, they have gone so far into this pagan idolatry that they were actually, actually offering their children up as sacrifices uh, to the God Molech. They were doing all sorts of terrible uh, orgies in the worship of their pagan gods. And so God in his mercy says, I've had enough. And, and so, again, he pronounces judgment on them in verse number three. He says, therefore, they shall be like a morning cloud and like an early dew that passes away. He had used those metaphors before, right, to, to represent something that really is fleeting, very fleeting, like the chaff that blows from the threshing floor or like smoke from a chimney. That's all they were. To, that's all the nation had become in God's eyes. Now, you stop and think about it. From my standpoint, the nation of Israel existed a long time. They existed 700 years. How old is this country right now? What, 250, something like that? Yeah, and, and they, they had existed 700 years. To me, that's a long time. But to God, that's nothing more than a vapor because God's plan for Israel wasn't for them to exist 700 years. His plan for Israel was for them to exist forever. That's still his plan for Israel. Read Psalm 105 if you don't believe that. His plan for Israel is for them to exist forever. Now that's not the plan of some politicians, but, but I, I have news for you. God overrules politicians. In fact, I heard on the news last week that our current president, now he still might do it, was going to take a proposal. He's got a proposal for a Palestinian statehood where the Israelites are forced to give up uh, a good portion of, of their land to the Palestinians, and he was going to take that to the UN, and the United States in the past has vetoed that very proposal, but they weren't going to veto it this time. They're actually going to present it. But now, you know, whether or not he can do that, uh, he's got 70 days, I think, left, so, so we'll see. But ultimately, God's in charge of Israel, and Israel's going to exist forever. Verse number four, yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, ever since I took you out of the land of Egypt and made you a nation, and you shall know no God but me. There's coming a time when you shall know no God but me. For there, I love this line right here, for there is no Savior but me. Now, wait a minute. Who's speaking here? Who's speaking here? Jehovah God is speaking here. And he says there is no Savior but me. Now, I've Theologically, that presents a problem because Jesus is my Savior, but it really 
doesn't present a theological problem if you understand the, what the name Jesus means because Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And uh, so there's, let, let me read you this in, the, in a mix with English and the Hebrew, and here's the way it comes out. It says, I am Jehovah Elohim, and there is no Hoshua, the Hosea, the same word we have as the title of this book. And what's the Hosea mean? It means salvation. There, and there is no Hoshua but me. There is no Savior but me. And God says, I'm the one who saved you and took you out of bondage. Uh, and whether you know me as God or not now, it's not going to matter because one day you shall know no God but me. Look at verse 4. For there is no Savior but me. Jehovah is salvation. And the Lord took them out of bondage and he took us out of bondage at a price, right? Verse number one of chapter, was it chapter 12 or chapter, or actually chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. That's how uh, God became the savior for the sins of Israel and for the sins of the world. When, when Jesus came back into Palestine and grew up and died on that cross. Then he says in verse number five, he says, I, I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. He's talking about in the wilderness journey where they, they struggled finding water. It had, they had to get it out. God had to bring it out of the rocks. And then they went into the promised land. And when they had pasture, they were filled. And they were filled and their heart was exalted. They became proud. They didn't need God anymore. And therefore, look at, listen to the heart of God here. Therefore, they forgot me. You hear the pain in his heart? In those words, therefore, they forgot me. In their prosperity, they forgot me. I blessed them. I took them out of, the, out of the wilderness, out of Egypt, into the wilderness, and out of the wilderness, into the promised land, and I prospered them, and they forgot me. They forgot me. They forgot the one who had called Abraham out of Chaldea and and given him a son named Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob had the 12 sons. And, he, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. They had forgotten all of that. They had forgotten that it was God who had nurtured them in the land of Egypt. And prepared them to become a great nation. And they multiplied mightily. And they were, there, a couple of a million of them went out into the wilderness. It was God that did that. And he sent the manna from heaven and the water out of the rocks and the quail and he provided for them. Then he brought them into the promised land and they had forgotten all of that. And not only have they forgotten all of that, do you understand the, the absurdity of what they were doing or the, the gall of what they were doing? They were giving credit to their pagan gods for the blessings that God was giving them. They had forgotten him and they were giving credit to Baal and to to the golden calf and to all the calves that they worship. And not only had they done that, with blatant intent, they had pushed God totally out of their society. They did everything they could to get Jehovah God out of their society. So we've heard the voice of a God who is hurt. And now listen to the voice of a God who is angry. Verse number seven. So I will be to them like a lion 
Like a leopard by the road, I will lurk. This is, these metaphors are pretty obvious here. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. It's a pretty graphic description of the catastrophic end that they were about to come to. Uh, it was going to be really quick. But listen to the voice of God now. God goes back and forth in these passages from being angry to being merciful and loving. I mean, that's who he is. To say God doesn't get angry is, 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 is ignorance, theological ignorance, because over and over again in the Bible, we see where God gets angry. God gets hurt. He gets hurt and he gets angry. But he's still mercy and he's still love. So listen to what he says in verse number nine. He says, Oh, Israel, you are destroyed. Some t uh, translations say you have destroyed yourself. Either way, the, the end result is the same. It's too late for you to do anything about your situation. I mean, you've crossed the line. The cup of wrath is full. And you are destroyed. If we were to shut the book right there, they would be in, off the pages of history forever. But listen, look, listen to the Lord. But your help, I love those buts in the Bible, those good buts. I hate the bad buts, but the good buts, I mean, there's good buts and bad buts, but the good buts are there. But your help is from me. Your help is for me. The Lord says, yes, I'm angry. And your destruction's coming really soon. But, but, your help is from the Lord. And I have a future and I have a hope, the Lord is saying, for the nation of Israel. But it's going to come from me. Nobody else is going to deliver you but me. Sometime in the future, it was a long, it's going to be a long, you know, by the, but when you take, tick the clock from 721 B.C. when they were destroyed to the end of the uh, Great Tribulation, which we don't know exactly when that's going to be. I think it's been put off a little bit now after the elections. I was wondering if we weren't right there. But, but uh, that's, that's a long time. But they shall know their God because their help comes from the Lord. And listen to what he says. It's some encouraging stuff in verse number 10. He says, I will be your king. I mean, where are these other kings at? What have they done for you? What he says next. That he may save you in all your cities. Your kings can't save you. You need me now and you don't realize it. And one day I am going to help you. And I'm going to be your king. And I'm going to live with you in Jerusalem and, and be your king. But where are your kings now, these kings you wanted so bad? And your judges whom said to you, give me a king and princes. And I gave, and going back in their history now, and I gave you a king in my anger, in my hurt and in my anger. That hurt, anger follows hurt. You hurt God and then God gets angry. Not like we didn't pitch a fit or anything like that, but he gets angry. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm kinda, I kind of like the people that pitch the fits 
sometimes because you can, you know, you can kind of deal with that. But boy, when my wife gets angry, it, it, it's silence. And you don't know what's going to happen next. And when God gets angry, it's, it's infinitely more frightening than my wife getting angry. But he gets angry when he's hurt, when we hurt him, especially intentionally, he gets angry. But he says, I will be your king. One day I will be your king. Jesus will rule and reign in Jerusalem and he will be king. But then he goes back in their history and says, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. He's about to take the last king away. One more king after Jeroboam, one or two more kings after Jeroboam, and that the first, which is who was king when they, Hosea was writing this, and then they're done having kings. They're through. Actually, the destruction against the nation began under Jeroboam the first. But you go back in their history and you remember the story. They, they were a theocracy. When they first began, they didn't know how good they had it. What's a theocracy? Theo is God. It's, it's where God rules and reigns. God is your king. What a deal. They had Jehovah God in their presence, in the temple, as their king. And they chased after idols right there with the Shekinah glory in their presence. They chased after idols, pagan idols. And remember what God did in the book of Judges when every man was doing what was right in their own eyes? He sent them oppressors, nations that oppressed them. And then they would be oppressed and they would have a rough time and they would, they would call out for the Lord and, and call out to the Lord and the Lord would send them a judge and that, or a deliverer and that judge would deliver them from the oppressor, whoever it was, the Midianites or whoever it was. And they would be delivered. And they, they went through that process over and over and over again for a couple of hundred years. And then their last judge, who happened to be their greatest judge, was Samuel. And Samuel had some evil sons, and the people saw that, you know, they were going to have an evil judge probably ruling over them. And they cried out to the Lord, and they said, we want to have a king like the rest of the nations. We don't want you ruling over us. We want a king like everybody else. We want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel came to the Lord and said, Lord, they don't want me to judge over them anymore. And the Lord said in 1 Samuel chapter 8, he said, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to do. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And they crossed that line. And the northern kingdom had all of these kings over all of these centuries, over these hundreds of years, and not one of them helped them. Not one of them did good for them. They were all evil kings. Now, the southern kingdom had some good kings, godly men, and really God was reigning through them, but not the northern kingdom. So he says, well, what good have these kings done for you? They've done nothing for you. And then he says in verse number 12, he says, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. The, in other words, uh, again, the King James maybe gets this the best. The, uh, Ephraim had bound their sins together and had hidden them from view. 
That's basically what this passage is saying. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored away. It's stored up. It's, it's hidden from view. But do you hide it from God? Do we ever hide our sin from God? No. Proverbs 28, who covereth his, his sin shall not prosper. You're gonna, your sin will find you out. You're not going to prosper. But here's, he says, back, where was I looking for? He, he says, Israel, which verse was it where it says Israel is destroyed? Verse number nine, is that it? Yeah. Israel is destroyed. I mean, you can hide your sins or you think you can think you hide your sins. And you can push God out of the picture and you can say, you know, Lord, we don't want you to rule and reign over us anymore. But I got news for you. God is still your judge. Every nation on this earth is still judged by God. I don't care who they worship or what they worship. Every individual on this earth is still judged by God. I don't care who they worship or what religion they are or whether they go to church or don't go to church. If somebody tells me they're agnostic, that doesn't excuse them from the judgment of God. You sin. The wages of sin is death. And that doesn't just mean death in the grave. That means a dying life. You pay for your sins. What you sow is what you reap. Nobody escapes the judgment of God. I don't care what you do with your sin. Your sin will find you out. He says in verse number 13, he says, the sorrows of a woman, the sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. In other words, the judgment's coming and it's already there. The, the birth pangs are already happening. And he is an unwise, yet he is an unwise son for he should not stay long where children are born. What he's saying right there, you know, when you have a pregnant wife and she goes in, starts having her contractions, her labor pains, what do you do? Do you just ignore them? No, you get her to the doctor as fast as you can. And he's given a picture here of, a, of an unwise son who, you know, the, children, the child's being born and he's doing nothing about it. And that's a picture of Israel where they were having these labor pains, these, these judgments were coming upon Israel and, 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 and they were just ignoring them. I mean, it, it's like Katrina hitting the United States of America and us just writing that off as global warming. I mean, you've got to ask yourself a question. You know, at the very least, when something like Katrina comes, my God, I don't know about your God, but my God certainly could have stopped that hurricane from coming into New Orleans and all of that flooding taking place. And so God allows these things for all sorts of reasons. And I'm, and I'm not trying to figure all of that out. But, but uh, uh, when you start seeing those things over and over again, you got to raise the question, you know, or these pains I'm having, do they have a reason? Especially as a nation. Is God trying to speak to our nation? Over in Amos, you know, he talks about all the things that he sent. You know, if, there is, is, if there's a disaster in the city, did I not send it? And I sent these things over and over and over again to try to get your attention. And now I'm not sending them anymore. You're on your own. I'm not going to warn you anymore. That's what he's going to tell them there. And, and here he's saying you're having these labor pains and you're, you're acting like a father who just ignores his, child, his, his wife's labor pains. And eventually that's going to cause some trouble. Verse number 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. 
I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity, or better translated, repentance, is hidden from, hidden from my eyes. You heard that passage before? That's over in 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 15, maybe, in that chapter on the resurrection. O death, where's your victory? O, o death, where's your string? O grave, where's your victory? I might have it reversed, but, but something like that. That's, that's a, 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 a paraphrase of this passage right here. So in the midst of this promise of judgment, God breaks through and gives Israel this great hope. Uh, I mean, here's what he's saying. He's saying repentance, repentance. He says pity there, but again, it's better translated repentance. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Repentance is hidden from me. In other words, I will not repent of my mercy and love for Israel. Repentance is, is, is not, I'm not going to, when I make a promise, I keep a promise, the Lord is saying. I'm not going to repent of the promises that I've given Israel. I'm not going to repent of my love for Israel. And, and how can God do that? Because he says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. They were about to be destroyed. Figuratively, they were going to be put in the grave. It was as if they were forever uh, destroyed, utterly forgotten by God. That's the way it's going to look. That's the way it looks now. now. It doesn't look so much like that now, but up until 1949, it looked like that. Because they were scattered all over the earth. And, and God says to them, he says, he says, Oh, death, where are your plagues? In other words, I'm bigger than death. I will redeem them from death. I will revive the nation. Oh, grave, I will be your destruction. He's talking on a national sense here. And of course, we can apply that on an individual sense to our own personal resurrection. But on a national sense, he's saying that one day I'm going to revive the nation of Israel. That's exactly the picture Ezekiel gives over in his prophecy. I wrote down the, the I think it's 37, Ezekiel 37, but I'm, where is it? Anybody remember that prophecy? I should circle these things. Anyway, in Ezekiel, you remember the vision of the dry bones? You remember how he said, Ezekiel, look out there in the valley of the dry bones? One day, I'm going to put flesh and life on those bones. And he's talking about the nation of Israel. You, you can take that and you can allegorize it to mean uh, uh, something else. But he's talking about reviving the nation. He was telling Ezekiel, I want you to look out on that field. And it looks like the nation's done for. But one day, I'm going to put flesh and bone on that nation. And, and I'm going to revive that nation. And they're going to have a future and a hope. And... Uh, uh, because I have the power over death. I have power over the grave. And they're buried now. They're going to be buried now, but, but one day in the future, they're going to be revived. And, and we're actually seeing part of that revival now as they're being brought back into the land. And ultimately, it'll be fulfilled when they, they're, they truly do have all of that promised land and Jesus Christ rules and reigns in, in righteousness in Israel. But now back to the judgment. He says, though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up. This is just literal prophecy right here. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable 
prize. Every good thing they've got, the, the Assyrians are going to take from them. Samaria is held guilty. I mean, the, I, here's the judgment. They're guilty. I'm angry. They're guilty. And they're going to be judged. For she has, notice he calls, her he calls Israel he sometimes and she sometimes. Anyway, he says, for she has rebelled against her God. I guess that's to get, bring the women in on this thing to make sure you don't think you're, you're escaping this too. They shall fall by the sword. They're, and this is literal right here because you, you can actually find this in the history books. Their infants shall be dashed to pieces and their women with child ripped open. That's how cruel the Assyrians were. I mean, in 721 B.C., Sargon II came down. Shalemazer had come down there before that, but he comes down and he finishes off the job. And it, you, you read the accounts of Josephus' accounts of, of what happened here. Uh, read uh, from some of these obliques they have where the, in antiquity where, where the Assyrians give their account of their destruction of Samaria. And it was brutal what they did to those people. I mean, they came in and they ripped open the pregnant women and, and killed their barely breathing babies. And then they took their little children and they dashed through them against the rocks and killed them. And then they made them slaves. Whoever was left, they were slaves and they were taken away with big hooks in their nose and in their mouths and chained together as they were carried off to these various countries as, as slaves. So God wasn't. God wasn't uh, fooling here. He was very serious about what was about to happen. But that's not the theme of this book. That's not the theme of the book. God was not through with the nation. That was Ezekiel 37, by the way. I just saw my, my notes on that. And one day after the great tribulation, the nation is going to come to know, we'll see this when we get all the way to Zechariah, is going to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord, and they will live in that kingdom forever. They'll be revived. They'll be revived. And they can say, oh, death, the Lord will be your plague. Oh, grave, the Lord will be your destruction. And we can say the same thing, too. And we get to a really encouraging chapter next week when we get to chapter number 14. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the power that you do have over the grave, the grave of nations and the grave of individuals. But, Lord, it all is possible because you called your son up out of Egypt. Lord, and you, as he, after he grew up and was just starting his ministry. You had him crucified on a cross, Lord. You or orchestrated it all so that he could die for the sins of the Israelites and he could die for the sins of the Gentiles. And we just thank you for, for that great grace, Lord. We thank you for your mercy because all of us, all of us have spent a lot of our life chasing after idols. A lot of us have gotten you from, Lord, if you hadn't chased us down, we still would be forgetting you. We're ungrateful people, Lord, and we just ask for, we just thank you again for your mercy that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. We, we just ask, Lord, that now that, that you give us the strength to be the kind of people that you want us to be, totally dedicated to serving you and living for you and, and being 
cognizant of your presence every, every, every moment of every day. But that's who you want us to be. You want us to never forget you, always remember you. Help us to be those kind of people, Lord. We need the help of your spirit to do that. And, and uh, we'll just thank you for the blessings you're going to give us through, through your presence. We just thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.